enter into eternal worship. Because our Father is here, He is worthy. to the sun, set our eyes on our Savior, see the image of love, sing His praises forever. Into color at the speed of light. Oh, freedom, shaking up the atmosphere in your presence, Jesus. As the shadows fade into nothing, as the day ends, beyond the skies above, love reaching out for us. The everlasting one, Jesus our God, yeah. Oh, we look to the sun, set our eyes on our Savior, see the image of love, sing His praises forever. Oh, we look to the sun. Hope of heaven shining like the rising sun. Now forever lifted up from death to life. We proclaim this. There's no fear in love and no darkness in his endless life. Beyond the skies above, reaching out for us. Everlasting one, Jesus our God. Oh, we look to the sun, set our eyes on our Savior, see the image of love, sing his praises forever. Oh, we look to the sun. Reaching out for us, the everlasting one, Jesus our God. Can we sing those words again? Beyond the skies above, love reaching out for us, the everlasting one, Jesus our God. Can we look this up? Oh, we look to the sun, yeah. Set our eyes on our Savior, see the image of love. We see you, Lord, sing his praises forever. Oh, we look to the sun, set our 
Yeah. 
moment in this opportunity as we seek his presence face to face would you sing to him these words from your heart my Jesus I love thee I know thou art mine for thee all the follies of sin I Crown of 
Would you tell him that from your heart? If ever I love you, my Jesus is now. Would you be seated, please, this morning as we prepare together to receive communion? You should find on your seat or the seat next to you a little communion kit that looks like this. And if you're unfamiliar, it's kind of a two-part thing here. You peel back the, the top uh, and, and the bread is right there underneath. And then there's a separate little lid that you peel back. And beneath that is the, the juice, the fruit of the vine. One of the great old hymns of our faith. And it reminds us of something that God wants to remind you of in this moment. And that is that Jesus made a promise. He said, whenever two or more of you come together, I'll be right there in your midst. I will be there among you whenever you come together. A lot of times we say to ourselves, Jesus, I'd, I'd love to see you in person, in the flesh. That would just be the greatest thing. The disciples felt that way. And Jesus said, no, guys, you don't understand. It's better for me, for you, that I go away in the flesh because then I can be with you in the spirit. I can be with you from the inside out. I can be closer to you than I could ever be in the flesh. And that's where he is this morning. He's with us. He's in us. He's in you. And he gives us, he gave us this simple ceremony, all believers, to remember his presence. And he invites you to do that this morning. The Bible says that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his own disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. Let's receive together. Lord, we are grateful this morning for your presence in our midst. And we thank you this morning for this grace that you give us this morning. In this simple little symbol, you give us your grace. You remind us that you have given it to us. And we receive that this morning with thanksgiving. We worship you. We praise you. Bible says afterwards he lifted up the cup and said this is the new covenant in my blood this is my promise to you that I will be with you forever and I'll lead you home every one of our hearts is hungry for our real home Jesus says in the new covenant I will lead you there I promised you I will do that so he said take a drink in remembrance of me let's receive together Lord, we receive your promise this morning. Help us to lift our eyes, to look ahead to the place that you are preparing for us, to fix our eyes on that eternal home and to rest in your promise to lead us there. We pray for that. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship, friends?
Oh, God. 
Father, would you let it be today? Let it be today that we place you as our confidence, Lord. Father, let it be today. We place you as Lord of our hearts. Yes, let it be today. That we look from earthly places towards heavenly places. Yes, let it be today that we recognize our citizenship in your kingdom, Lord. And with it, let us not be swept away in the cares of this world or drowned from the weight of its disappointments. But let us, morning by morning, cling to the eternal life that is found in you. So yes, we look to the sun today. Let it be every day. We glorify your name in this place, Jesus. We say this in your name. Amen. Amen, church. Well, welcome to second service here at MRCC. We are so happy you will join us today. Well, hey, would you turn to those around you and just make them feel welcome in the house of the Lord this morning? Yeah. Yeah, huge thanks and appreciation to everybody who volunteered to help make our Nitro Kids Retreat last weekend a success. Can we kind of appreciate all those folks? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Everybody who served, everybody who scholarship. It was awesome. It was a great weekend for the kids. Kind of listening to the music, the soundtrack they put to that, it kind of felt like it was 1985 again. Did anybody, anybody else feel that? I, I guess what goes around comes around, right? So, yeah. Just hope certain stuff doesn't come back, but it's 
good to see you. Welcome this morning. Welcome to Second Service. Good to be back. Uh, was off last week and got to do a little rest and refreshment. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thanks to Pastor Brent uh, for bringing the word last week. I heard he did a great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of encourage him too. Yeah. This is like a weird part of the year, isn't it? The end of February is like the highway between Buckley and Bonnie Lake. It's not really anywhere, you know. You just kind of going through it to get somewhere, right? Kind of feels like that. Three-day weekend, though, is nice. If you have that, I hope that you'll enjoy that. It's great to see you this morning. Welcome. A few things, uh, friends, before we open God's Word uh, together. Uh, one is that this Saturday is kind of a special morning. Um, it, a number of us here at MRCC who are business owners or who are contractors or who are skilled craftsmen have said, hey, with the kids' expansion that's going to be built starting this summer, finished sometime around Thanksgiving, we'd love to contribute, we'd love to help, we'd love to bring our business alongside of that or our skills alongside of that. If that's you, uh, this Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, we're going to meet down here, the, the chair of our development team, Larry Bullock, and the development team will be here, and this is an opportunity to, to talk shop talk, to talk contractor talk. Uh, um, we're going to go over the plans and stuff and explore ways in which, you know, you might be able to, to uh, provide your skills to the project this summer. It's going to be starting here end of June, beginning of July, so we're going to see construction going on just north of our sanctuary building here, and then by, by about Thanksgiving, we're going to have a first-class kids' wing built right next door. Pretty cool. And part of the coolness of it, church, is that when the whole thing is done, uh, we as a family will have done this with God's help and without one penny of debt. <laughs> and that's due to the faithfulness of our giving every week, every week. And some of us have been doing that for years and years. So thank you for that. It's going to be pretty cool this summer. But Saturday morning, 9 o'clock here at the sanctuary, we'll have coffee, donuts, and stuff like that. But we'll get together and, and talk shop. By the way, if you would like to make a, a special gift to the project, there's that blueprint card in the seat in front of you. Uh, you can scan the QR co code on the seat there or go to the website called the church office. Let us know. We would love to hear from you, get in touch with you about uh, how to do that. A couple more announcements. One is that uh, coming up on the 4th of March will be a Mercy Reigns missions dinner that will be happening here at the church. Mercy Reigns is a ministry led by members of our congregation in Uganda over in Africa. It's where the missions team was a little bit after Christmas time. They're going to be sharing a report from that, hearing about plans going forward, hearing about the trip that's going to happen this summer. So that Friday night is a missions dinner. You're invited to come and be a part of that, even if you just want to find out about Mercy Reigns and hear from some of the folks who are involved in that. That's going to happen on that Friday evening of 4th of March, and actually uh, Larry Travis will be out in the sanctuary with some little cards that have more information about Mercy Reigns today. You can connect with him about that. And then one more thing is that uh, coming up next month in March, the first three Sunday nights of March, uh, the 6th, the 13th, and the 20th. Those will be our spring membership classes. And I want to invite you to be a part of that. If you haven't become a member of MRCC, but you consider this your home church, I want to invite you to come and join us for those three meetings. It's a chance for me to get to meet you. It's a chance for you to find out how to get connected and be involved with what's happening here at the church. It happens on three successive Sunday evenings, 90 minutes, 6 to 7.30. We meet down the hall in room 105. I'd love to invite you to be a part of that. Somebody might say, you know, what's the big deal about church? 
church membership? Well, it kind of is and isn't a big deal. I like to use this analogy. Um, I, I wear this ring because I'm married to my wife, but this ring doesn't make me married to my wife. This ring is my public proclamation that I am. I want you to know that. And church membership is, is an I love you to the body of Christ. It's saying, you know what, uh, I'm one of us. I want to be part of us. This is my family in Jesus. And so if this is your home church, I want to invite you to come and join us. You can sign up in the foyer. Again, scan the code, call the church, stop by the website, whatever works for you. Stand on your roof and shout. Whatever works, we'll get the message. Uh, but membership classes are coming up next month. Grab your Bible, friends, if you would, and open it to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to continue this journey that we've set ourselves on this spring all the way through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And remember what we said at the outset, that as we grow up in our faith, what God wants to do is move us to the point where we stop seeing his word as just kind of a reference tool that we go to every now and then based on what's going on in our lives. It is that, and that's normal when we're young in our faith. But as we grow up in our faith, God wants to bring us to the point where we receive his word on its own terms, where we treat it as an ongoing dialogue with a living God, and that we receive it in his context so that maybe he wants to talk to me about something that I don't even know I need to be talked to about, that I don't even know that I want to hear about. And it's when we receive God's word on his terms that we really begin to learn that and, and grow deep in our relationship with him. And so we've set this spring to walk uh, together through Romans this morning. We're in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to go down through verse 12. Let me ask you this. Would you consider yourself to be a daredevil? Or are you more a person who likes to play it safe? Do you daydream about skydiving? Show of hands, just, you know, right? Yes, some of us do. Or, or base jumping or wingsuiting or all that kind of crazy. You know what wingsuiting is? Let's just take a moment. Give your attention to the screen for about 60 seconds. Let me share this with you. <laughs> Does that look fun to you? <laughs> yeah, me neither, but to some of us it does. If that looks fun to you, you're, you're, you're a daredevil. Some of us are inclined that way more than others. Here's something I've learned about daredevils, is that many of them actually get into their hobbies, whatever they are, this kind of thing. They get into it in order to overcome a fear or a challenge in their life. For example, this guy, Brandon Mikesell, he has a YouTube channel. You can go and see him doing all this kind of stuff in crazy places. But he shares in there how he got involved in this sport in order to conquer his social anxiety, which had caused him to have a crippling stuttering problem. 
He got into wingsuiting in order to overcome that. I kind of think that if I did that, I would start stuttering. You know what I mean? <laughs> Wouldn't like stop it, it would start it. But, but yeah, isn't that interesting? That he stepped into it in order to conquer something else in his life. We're going to kind of come back to that idea in a couple of minutes this morning. But you know, when I was a boy growing up, I was a little bit of a daredevil because I think I was always trying to prove something to somebody, maybe maybe myself. But I remember one summer day, I was about 10 years old, our family went camping on the Mackenzie River down in Oregon where we grew up in beautiful day. And when we got there, there was this giant boulder kind of jutting out into the river. Uh, my 10-year-old memory thinks it was about 20 feet tall. It was probably six or eight feet tall, but it looked like this huge boulder out into the river. And, and uh, my brother said, we should climb that and jump off it. I was like, yes, we should. So we started to climb it, and my brother, who's always been smarter than me, about halfway up, sort of decided this was a bad idea. He says, now nah, I'm going back down. I said, no, I'm going for it. This was an opportunity to kind of get one over on my brother, I thought. And so I climbed all the way up to the top of it. And then there came a moment that kind of lives in our family's lore uh, when I got everybody's attention. Then I shouted, Geronimo, and jumped off the boulder into the river. About halfway down, it occurred to me that this might not have been the brightest thing I'd ever done, you know. And I became scared. And I remember landing in the river in a panic, you know, at that point, thinking, ah, and I started screaming, help, help, dad, help. And I remember looking over to the shore and seeing my dad and family, and my dad in particular was just laughing. <laughs> he was thinking maybe one less mouth to feed, I don't know, whatever it was. <laughs> he was just laughing so hard, and, and I remember being hurt and thinking, no, dad, help, 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 you know, and he was able to pull it together just enough to stop himself laughing just enough that he said, stand up. <laughs> and I'll always remember, what? Stand up? What do you mean I'm going to drown? But something just enabled me to follow his instruction. I remember putting my feet down and discovering I was in about three and a half feet of water. <laughs> my feet hit the ground. What a blessed feeling when my feet hit the bottom of the river. And I realized, you know what, I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm secure. There's nothing to be afraid of here. And then I even pretended to laugh along with dad and mom, but actually I was kind of mad at dad at that point. But, but yeah, I, the feeling of that firm, solid ground under my feet. God wants to talk to you about that kind of feeling this morning. Uh, here in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand something about the ground beneath our feet, spiritually speaking, eternally speaking. And maybe you're living with a fear that that ground isn't there. This morning, God wants to talk to you about that. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Let's, let's listen to what the apostle says. Like I said, we're going to move down through verse 12, but we'll, we'll take it in some, some bite-sized pieces. Verse 1, chapter 5, the Bible says this, Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, notice what he says, have been, past tense. Justified means declared righteous. You remember these last few weeks, we learned that the gospel is about a righteousness that comes from God. Not one that we create, one that God gives us. With that thought in mind, Paul says, since we have been justified through faith, through believing, we have peace with God 
That word is a rich word in Hebrew tradition. Peace means more than just the absence of conflict. It means reconciliation. It means friendship. It means connection. It means intimacy. It means blessing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, who, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, this undeserved favor in which we now stand. And because of it, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's, let's break that down for just a moment. Notice what Paul says. First of all, we have been justified. The Greek word is dikaios, and it means a righteousness that comes from God. Not one that we earned, one that was given to us. That's important to grasp, friends. To grow in your faith, you must understand that righteousness with God is something he gives to all who believe. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve or validate. It is something that God gives to us. I remember when I was in the service over in Bremerton and uh, through the USO, they bought a block of tickets for an NBA game. Uh, the Sonics were still in town and they, I forget who they were playing, but they were courtside tickets. And being a basketball fan, I got so excited because I would never be able to afford courtside tickets, but they had set aside a block for us in the service. And so me and a couple buddies, we got together and we bought some tickets to go to the game. Thought, wow, we're going to sit courtside like the, like the real people do, you know. And I remember being excited about it and then picking up the other guys. We headed to the game. We parked, got up to the front gate there, and I reached in my pocket for the tickets and realized I had left them on the living room table. And the guys are looking at me like, why are you so stupid, Dalton? It's kind of a look I've grown used to over the years, but... Ah, I don't have the tickets. I'm like, oh my goodness, but we have tickets. And the lady at the gate is saying, I'm sorry, I can't let you in without tickets. And I'm thinking, I can't believe we choked so bad. We drove around. There was no time to go home and get them and come back and feeling crestfallen. And then uh, a senior usher from somewhere back in the shadows suddenly appeared, came walking up and said, are you guys in the, the military block of tickets? I said, yeah, we're supposed to be, but I left the tickets on the dining room table because I'm such an idiot. And he looked at us, and I could tell he was taking in our haircuts. You get used to that when you're in the service. And he goes, come with me, fellas. And he took us in without our tickets all the way down courtside and put us in our seats. And I remember being so thankful in that moment and so appreciative. Well, that's what God has done in Christ. You don't have a ticket, but he's invited us in anyway. He's taken us through the barrier that we couldn't cross on our own and given us the status that we didn't achieve on our own. We have been, notice the past tense, we have been justified. That's important to understand. The past tense is Paul's point in the passage. It's very clear in the Greek grammar. He wants us to remember that this happened for us in the past, in the moment when you believed, when I believed. In that moment, we were given righteousness from God. Sometimes we say that sounds too good to be true. Friends, that's the gospel. That's why it's so electric, so exciting, is that God gives us that righteousness. Once you believe in that moment, it is a done thing. I've had a whole bunch of surgeries in my life, and I remember the first one, the first time I went into surgery, uh, big knee surgery, and uh, I'd never been in it before, and so everything was new. They, they bring you into that pre-op room on the gurney with the gown. If you've had surgery, you know what that's about. They give you the IVs and stuff, and they're talking to you. How you doing? Are you warm enough? Hey, we're going to take you in in a minute, blah, 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 and I'm chatting with them, and so on. She's saying, start counting, and I'm counting, and then... All of a sudden, uh, I kind of drifted off, and I woke up real fast, and I'm still in the same place. And so I said to the nurse, hey, when do we go in? She says, no, you're done. 
It already happened. I'm like, what? Yeah, the anesthesia kind of wipes out your short-term memory, you know. So actually, you've had the surgery. This is the recovery room. We're getting ready to send you to your room. And I remember going, whoa. God says in the same way. What I've done for you is done. There's some healing ahead of you. There's some, as Paul says in Philippians 3.16, there's some living up to what we've already attained. But it's happened. When you believed, the surgery happened. And we are meant to rest in that. We are meant to think of that as like that, that ground beneath my feet. When I was afraid of drowning and suddenly I put my feet down and realized there was solid ground underneath me. God wants you to grasp that, to understand that in your soul, in your spirit. You have been justified through faith. It's a done deal. And it was done from the moment you believe. Lots of believers live day to day as if they're still waiting for God to do something so they can be sure they're forgiven or saved or given eternal life. But it's already done. Jesus finished that work and when we believed, we received that work. And we're meant to rest in that. Look again at what Paul says. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, don't hurry, friends, past that phrase, peace with God. It's incredibly significant. You know, the tendency in our world, in our culture, is just to assume that everybody, or at least most everybody, already has peace with God. But the Bible says that's not true. Jesus says the road to hell is broad and wide, and the great multitude rush down it. And the road to eternal life is narrow, and only a few find it. You see, friends, the reality is that we are not born having peace with God, and that apart from Christ, we don't have peace with God. Lots of people just assume that they do, and that assumption is a tragic and dangerous mistake. I remember when um, I was sent overseas to Iceland, spent a year living in Iceland when I was in the military. And, and when we got there, you know, everybody was eager to explore. And I remember on weekends renting cars and going driving to the city, going driving throughout the countryside. And one of the things that was striking about those drives in the countryside was how many hundreds, thousands of sheep were roaming all across Iceland on, on what we would call free range. You know, no fences. And they were everywhere. You couldn't drive 10 miles without seeing a herd of sheep. It's a, it was, at least then, and probably still is, a key part of their economy, wool and all the products that come from it. And, and so when you went out, there would be these sheep everywhere. And because it was free range, they would be on the highway, right on the road, going down the road, crossing the road. You'd come around a corner, there'd be a whole bunch of sheep. And you learned pretty quickly to pay attention to that. And you could see the Icelandics always being very careful in how they drove in the countryside. And, and uh, I picked up on it, and I was like, man, we've got to be careful. We're going to hit some sheep and come around any corner, and they could be there. One day, I remember one of the guys in our barracks came home laughing. Uh, he had just dropped off his rental car, and while he and his buddy were out driving, they had hit one of the sheep. <laughs> He was just thought that was the funniest thing since forever. And when he turned in his rental car, there was actually a little bit of damage to the car, and he was talking about how the insurance had taken care of it. And he thought it was funny. He said, you know, um, these people should take care of their sheep and keep them off the road. Well, little did he know what can of worms he'd opened. 
Because here's the reality about traffic laws in Iceland. If you hit a sheep anywhere, anytime, on the road or off it, it is always your fault. <laughs> Legally, that's the reality. There's no such thing as saying, well, it was an accident. They were on the road. They shouldn't have been. They were in a place. They should. Nope, there's none of that. If you hit the sheep, it is your fault. And that's just the beginning of the story. If you hit a ewe, which is a female sheep, you know, if you hit a female sheep, you are automatically on the hook to the owner for the cost of that sheep, the market value of that sheep, and the next generation of sheep she would have produced, <laughs> kind of averaged out. You're automa there's no discussion, there's no pleading, there's no saying extenuating, nope, you're on the hook to the owner for that. And if you hit a ram, please don't. <laughs> If you hit a ram, you are on the hook automatically to the owner for the cost of that ram, for the cost of the next generation, both male and female, that ram would have produced, and then the next generation, any rams would have produced. This guy had hit a ewe, and he was on the hook for $13,000, he found out. No, no pleas, no saying it was an accident or it was the sheep's fault. There was none of that. Because there, the law is the law. And when we heard that, I remember the speech they gave us before we went overseas. They said, hey, understand, fellas, whatever country you go to, ignorance is no defense under their laws. You need to find out what the local laws are because if you break them, then they're broken and you're accountable for that. You can't say, well, I didn't know. In the same way, God says, the whole world is accountable to my laws to what's right and what's wrong, to what's good and what's bad, whether you know it or not. And once we grasp that, then suddenly peace with God becomes a big deal. I was intensely happy that I had never hit a sheep when I was driving when I saw what happened to my buddy. And Paul says, hey, if you're in Christ, you have that peace with God. You are not under that law. You don't need to fear that outcome. And he wants us to understand that. He wants us to rest in that. Again, like firm ground under our feet. Peace with God is a big deal because without it, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. Whether it's the earthly consequences of your actions, the scripture says a man reaps what he sows. Can't tell you how many times I've sat with somebody who said, I did something, I said something a year ago, a decade ago a week ago, and I didn't realize all the consequences, and now they're coming home. Friends, can I tenderly share with you that a week and a half ago, I met a man who said that very same thing. We met in my office for about 20 minutes. I told him, I said, there's hope in Christ. There's forgiveness. There's grace. God wants to give it to you. He wants you to have it. There's a way through this. There's a way beyond this. But he didn't believe it. Five days later, he took his life, and I'll be doing his memorial this Saturday. The consequences of sin are very real. Man reaps what he sows. But peace with God is also very real. And when we're willing to receive that by believing in Jesus as our Savior, in that moment, we have the peace that overcomes the consequences and it's not just those earthly consequences. There's also the day of judgment that's coming for every human being on the planet, you, me, and everybody. Paul writes about that over in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or slanders, or swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, there's a law, and it's real, and the consequences are eternal. It's only when we get serious about sin and come clean about it that God forgives us and gives us right. He's eager to. But we have to be serious and honest and personal with him about that. And Paul finishes that passage in verse 11 by saying, that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus. In other words, when you received him as your savior, you were covered over. Those sins were covered over. You now have peace with God. You don't have a $13,000 bill from the Icelandic government. You have peace with the Icelandic. You have peace with God. We're meant to understand the deep significance of that and then to rest in it. Maybe you've been thinking to yourself, you know what? I've got to pay the price for those things. When you receive Christ as your Savior, that eternal price is taken away. You have peace with God. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus and we're meant to rest in it. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and as a consequence, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's important to understand when you read the word hope in your New Testament, it is stronger than the English word hope. The Greek word is elpis. It doesn't mean something which might happen. It means something which will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, he wants us to rest in that peace that we have been justified, past tense, that we have righteousness. Let me ask you this morning personally, kind of as we turn through the middle. Are you resting in his finished work or are you still trying to, 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 to write your resume, so to speak, for eternal life? God wants you to rest in his finished work that you receive by faith. Otherwise, you'll spend your whole life being blackmailed. Steve Brown tells the story of a little boy who accidentally killed his grandmother's pet duck with a slingshot. And his sister saw the foul deed. Yeah, I went there. And he, he, he begged her not to tell anyone, not to say anything. Like a little sister, she agreed for a price. She said, I'll keep my mouth shut, but I want you to do my chores. In the moment, he agreed, but after a few days, that became a burden. And he went to her and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. She looked him in the eye and just said, remember the duck. And he went back to doing her chores. This went on for the whole summer. Finally, at the end of the summer, he went to his grandmother and he confessed what had happened. And she said, I know, I was standing in the kitchen and I saw the whole thing. <laughs> I forgave you back then because I knew you were sorry. I was just wondering how long it would take for you to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come to me. <laughs> In the same way, God says, I want to forgive you. I want you to have that grace. You just have to come to me. I'm just waiting for you to come to me. Those of us who have, understand you're meant to know that the water you're in is only three feet deep. When you put your feet down and stand up, you will find solid ground underneath you. God wants you to know that he, not the accuser, not any other human being, not you yourself, he has the last word on you. And when you believed in Jesus, he put firm ground under your feet. So stand up on it. That's what it means to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Stand on his work so that you won't become discouraged. 
Now, he goes on in verses 3 to 5 to raise a whole issue related to this. Listen to what he says. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. We, don't, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. That's a profound equation. We're going to dwell on it in a moment. He says, and hope, this kind of hope that comes from perseverance and character, this does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Take note of that equation. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. The key to understanding this passage is the word perseverance, which in the Greek is the word hupomineo. It's a wonderful word. It means that kind of confident spirit that a, a well-equipped, knowledgeable person steps into a situation with. Hupomineo, in fact, in those days, came to refer to champion athletes who knew that they were better than the next guy or the next gal. And they had a confident spirit as a result of it. There's a beautiful illustration of this in my favorite movie, Chariots of Fire, where Eric Little is going to run in the Olympics. It's 1924. He's going to run in the Olympics, and he's been all his life a 100-meter sprinter. He actually got to the Olympics by winning 100-meter heats. But now that he got there, the 100 meters was going to run on a Sunday. He was a Christian. He wouldn't run on a Sunday. And so he said, I can't do it. And uh, the movie is about that whole challenge and struggle and his witness and testimony that came out of it. Well, the end of the story is that one of his fellow competitors says, hey, Eric, you can have my spot in the 400 meters. Now, if, if you know anything about running, you know the difference between the 100 meters and the 400 meters. One's incredibly harder than the other. And he had never run this before in his life. But he knew what he was capable of. And there's this cute little scene in the movie where he gets out on the Olympic track to run the 400 meters competitively for the first time in his life against Olympic competition. And he's getting his chocks ready and he, he turns to the guy behind him and he walks over and he shakes his hand and he says, good luck today. I thought I'd say hi to you because after the gun goes off, you won't see me anymore. <laughs> he just knows he's going to win. And it's that kind of spirit that God wants to cultivate in you and me. This confidence, this forward-looking faith that says, God, I know what you have done for me, and I know what you're doing in me now through my sufferings, through my trials, through my difficulties. And as a result of that, I have this confident spirit. I know where this is all leading and there's a, there's a connotation to the word hupomineo too that is, is wonderful. It, it speaks of the joy of feeling that way, of having that confident, overcoming spirit. There's a, there's a joy that comes from it that we are meant to experience as well. Again, using sports as a metaphor, I remember when I was in high school and, and playing soccer, we got a new coach one year and he came in and he was the hardest driving coach I'd ever encountered, a British guy. And he, he told us, he said, uh, don't talk to me, just run, just run. I'm going to run you harder than anybody's ever run you before in your life. And we would go to preseason practice and daily doubles and stuff and he would just run us and run us like we'd never been run before. Guys, Guys would puke, guys would throw up, guys would think about quitting. It was rough. Sometimes we'd come up to him and go, coach, and he'd say, don't talk to me, just run. You know, If you tried to talk to him during practice, he'd send you for a mile run, and it was brutal. 
And I remember the feeling of how difficult it was. We would wake up in the morning and I could barely move my legs. I'd go to school like a 90-year-old man walking around. And, What's wrong with you? I'm, you know, preseason. It was miserable until the regular season started. And then we would get into these games and we'd get into the second half and the other team would start to look tired and their heads would go down and they'd be leaning over trying to catch their breath and we were going fine. And there was this feeling we'd look at each other, we got these guys, they're tired, we're not, let's go. It was a wonderful feeling. He knew that ahead of time and so he cultivated it in us. And in the same way, God seeks to cultivate that in you. That's why Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. We know what it does, what it creates, what it is creating in us. James says the same thing over in chapter 1, verses 2 and following, when he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, there's the word again, develops perseverance. Hupomineo. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When our coach put us through that, he wanted us to have that joy. He wanted us to have that spirit, that feeling. And in the same way, God wants you. And so he's at work in what is going on in your life right now. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that he caused your suffering, your hardships, your trials. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say that he uses them that he is using him. This last two years has been harder for most of us than we thought was possible. When it started, we thought, well, this is going to be a challenge. But we kind of overcame it. We said, well, we'd do what we do for a little while. We didn't know it was going to be two years. I remember seeing a meme at the beginning of the whole thing that said, hey, you know, your grandfather's generation was asked to go to war in a foreign country. You're just being asked to stay home for a little while. You can handle this. And thinking, yeah, but then it got hard. And it got real hard for some of us. It's affected our families. It's affected our businesses. It's affected our relationships in ways we didn't imagine. But God says, friends, hear me. God says, I'm at work in this in your life. Through this, I am teaching you perseverance. Perseverance leads to character, the ability to stick it out, the ability to stay with it. And that character will lead to hope. And that's what I want you to feel. That's what I want you to know. Timothy Keller writes about how shepherds in Scotland every spring throw their sheep into a huge vat filled with stinking liquid, and they are not happy about it. Each animal has to be completely submerged, head, nose, and ears, as well as body, and they don't like it. They fight, they scream, they bite, they're terrified. If they try to climb out, though, the sheepdogs growl and snap and force them back into the vat. It's awful for them. But what the sheep don't know and the shepherd does know is that that stinking liquid is a powerful medicine. And as a result of it, they will be parasite and disease-free for the whole year. And so the shepherd puts them through it. The shepherd leads them through it. And in the same way, God's at work in your trials in your sufferings in this season. Never doubt it. When you know that, it puts your feet on solid ground. It enables you to rest and have that overcoming spirit that is both a blessing and a joy. Friends, understand, without the suffering, the perseverance doesn't come. And as a consequence, the hope never settles in. But God is using your hard times to take away your fear of hard times. And that's critical. We're always praying for strength. Strength comes from practice. It's not magic. It's the result of exercise. We should choose to rejoice in it, that is, endure it, hopefully, because that's where the peace for the long haul comes from.
I remember reading a little book by a favorite musician of mine, Michael Card, a, a Christ follower, has written some, some songs all of us know. And he talked about his mentor who, who had introduced him to Jesus and then taught him how to follow Jesus through his college days. And then shortly after that, he went to meet with his mentor one week, and his mentor said, Mike, I have to tell you that I've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, in about six to nine months, unless the Lord heals me, I will die. And Mike says, I felt overcome. I felt overwhelmed. I remember feeling just shock and sadness. And then he says, but then my mentor said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, Mike, now I'm going to show you how a Christian man dies. And he went on to do just that. Mike said it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. And it grew in him a confidence about what's ahead. God wants that for you. God wants that for me. And it comes when we recognize that he's at work in our difficult times. Paul goes on to finish this passage, verses 6 and following. Listen to what he says. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for us, the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But hear this, friends. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God seeks you at your worst. God seeks you in your most profound shame, in your ugliest guilt, in your deepest regret and sense of failure, he seeks you in those moments. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing that that's who he is is meant to put that firm ground underneath your spirit. Since we have now been, verses 9 to 11, justified by his blood, there's that past tense reference again, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled now that we're his friends, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received, it's already ours, reconciliation. Paul is saying if he came to seek and save us at our worst, how much more will he bless us as we strive to be our best? Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe in your heart that God is seeking to reward you today? Most people don't. They think, well, God's going over my accounts, kind of like Santa does every Christmas to see who's naughty and nice, who he needs to bring the hammer on down. But in fact, what the Bible teaches is that he is constantly seeking to reward you for your obedience. Part of the motivation, the passion to serve God comes from knowing that he is looking for ways to reward us. I remember when Isaiah was uh, a little boy and, and you know, I started giving him an, a, an allowance, Rhonda and I did, and, and then he began to learn that he could earn bonuses for certain things. All of a sudden, he's heads on a swivel. He's looking for every opportunity to earn the bonus. In the same way, God wants us to understand that it is his desire to reward us. In fact, we're almost done. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God can't be pleased unless you know that he wants to reward you. You're that way with your kids. You want them to know that you want the best for them, that you're always seeking to help them 
in life, to make good choices and experience the joy of that. In the same way, God wants us to grasp that. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. Again, when you know that, it puts that solid ground under your feet to make the decisions day in and day out, week in and week out, that please your Father. The whole point of this passage is to rest in who he is. Matt Chandler writes that the test of whether or not you know God is what you do when you fail him. Do you run towards him or away from him? If you know who he is, that's solid ground under your feet and you run towards him in your worst moments. He's inviting you to do that even this morning. Now, everything we've talked about, this confidence, this eupomineo, this looking forward in faith, this solid ground beneath our feet, it begins with your surrender. It begins with my surrender. See, what God invites us to do is come to him in surrender. Stop fighting. Stop seeking our own way about everything. Stop seeking the world's way about everything. But to come to him and surrender, say, God, I need to be fathered. I need you to teach me. I need you to grow me. I need you to raise me. When the Confederate Army under General Robert E. Lee made camp on April 7th, 1865, near Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, at the end of the Civil War, they were afraid. General Lee said to his staff, there's nothing left but to go and see General Grant and find out what our fate will be. Every man of that army expected prison or execution. Grant said, I would rather die a thousand deaths than go and face him. But I must go. And the next morning at 10 a.m., he rode up to General Grant, dismounted his horse, and handed over his sword, expecting either execution or prison, at the very least, to be arrested. He was stunned when Grant said instead, you're not under arrest, sir. We want you to stop fighting and start living. Give up your weapons. We want you to go home, plant your fields. We'll give you food and horses and help so that you can get there, so that you can make the journey. But here today, the war is over and your life begins. <laughs> Lee would later write that he was so overcome by that unexpected grace that made him the champion of reuniting the country going forward. In the same way, God says, hey, when you surrender to me, you're going to find out that what I wanted all along was what's best for you. <laughs> I want you to stop fighting and start living. I want to put solid ground under your feet so that the things of this world don't discourage you. I want you to know me as I am. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes this morning. And maybe you've never surrendered to God. This morning you can feel his spirit tugging you to do just that. Know this, he'll meet you in your surrender. He'll teach you to start living. He doesn't want to crush you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to rescue. He wants to call you my daughter, my son. He wants to make you his own and he wants you to know that you're his. And that happens in the moment that you say, God, I surrender. I confess my sins to you. I receive your son as my savior. 
You can do that right here and right now. God's listening to your heart. He's here for you. He's always been seeking you. If that's you, you can surrender right here and right now. He'll meet you in it. You'll know. Maybe you made that surrender a long time ago, but somewhere along the way, you started thinking the water is deeper than it was. You started flailing and swimming and trying to save yourself. God, God says, put your feet down. Discover the firm ground that's under you. You have been justified. You have been made righteous because of your faith. You have peace with me. I want you to rest in it. And I want you to recognize that I'm at work in your trials, in your suffering. So you can rest in that. God, we, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we go from here, it would be unafraid of the water because it's not deeper than your grace. We ask that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Yeah. Hope you're going to be able to take advantage of this three-day weekend. Sleep in tomorrow morning. The Bible says God gives sleep to those he loves. So I give you permission to sleep till noon tomorrow. But seriously, we rest because we know the work is finished. So now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love him. Have a great afternoon.